Hello, my name's Justin the Clue, and I'm here today with Will Sloan. And you're listening to the Important Cinema Club, and it's Shockvember! Yeah, Shockvember is much, you know, shorter, and it (laughs) doesn't have as many, like, chains and ghosts and stuff like that. We wanted to do another horror filmmaker slash exploitation filmmaker because this one is really close to our hearts, and that's Roberta Findlay. It's one that I didn't know a whole lot about, but I think that we both wanted to explore a little more. She's a filmmaker who doesn't even have a Wikipedia page, which is crazy to me. I think it's crazy because she's better known than her husband at this point, who does have a Wikipedia page. Yeah, if you look at Michael Finley, he has a long one that's like broken down in like life, death, this chapter. And she gets mentioned and I'm like, "Ah, why can't I click on it? I want to know more. Maybe she's involved in that because we should preface this episode with saying that Roberta Finley has no love for cinematic work. Everyone should listen to her interview on the Rialto Report podcast where she yeah expresses amazement that anyone would care for her films. She seems like somebody who was well the way she describes herself it can't really be true but the way she describes herself is that she was kind of brought into filmmaking and then just kind of stuck there because all the men she was associated with were there. She describes herself as a barnacle on the sea of life, you know, usually attached to a man. So it's going to be tough not to just summarize that interview because it's so good and has so much information in it. But, you know, when I was watching the movies this week and I watched a few films by her husband as well, I was having a hard time kind of getting an angle of approach on her because... I think it's it's a stretch to call her an auteur. Mm. Uh, she's, you know, a skillful filmmaker. She has quite a bit of talent. I, I think the angle of approach is, A, you know, she's a woman, and there aren't a lot of women who are directing movies like the ones that she was. And B, she just has a long career that encompasses a lot of interesting periods. You know, she and her husband started in sexploitation. Um, she became one of the only directors along with maybe Doris Wishman and one or two others who were directing hardcore porn films in the 1970s during the big boom of those. And then she made all these kind of direct-to-video grindhouse horror films in the 80s. Well, if there's any theme that you can see over and over again in uh, Roberta Finley's work is that sex sucks and that like it's miserable and there's no pleasure in it and that New York especially tenements are hellscapes that will crush you and in fact she did grow up in a tenement in a a lower class part of the Bronx and later she made a film called Tenement which is the kind of ugly hateful flip side to Death Wish 3 exactly um so just to start and give a little bit of context of where she came from like we'll mention she did grow up with immigrant parents um they wanted her to be a concert pianist she studied music and she met her husband Michael Finley when she answered an advertisement for a um pianist to play during silent movies And together they became this husband and wife filmmaking team in the sort of New York sexploitation world. You know, Joe Sarno would have been there. Uh, George Weiss, he might have been L.A., but I know the the, the Findleys were associated with him. And uh, Michael Findley has kind of a bad reputation. On the Rialto Report interview, uh, Roberta Findley says that if he didn't have these films to channel his misogyny into, he may have been out assaulting women in real life. 
But I think the thing that separates Michael Finley and Roberta, especially even at the beginning of their career from the other people that were making films, is that they were doing it for money, but... Roberta has said very clearly that they were also like film fanatics. Mm -hmm. Like Michael was the original one. And she said that she was kind of dragged along with him. But listening to her talk, it's obvious that she loves cinema, even though that she looks down on it as well. Well, in the interview, she talks about how her husband was very interested in like John Cassavetes and that sort of thing. She veered more towards like John Ford and Billy Wilder, you know, the big American or at least Hollywood filmmakers. I watched one of Michael Findlay's most famous films this week, The Touch of Her Flash. Which came out in 1967. And was a black and white, roughy, sexploitation film. Actually a proto-slasher, if you will. Yeah, and it's uh, a, certainly a very problematic object, but it, I think, could only be made by somebody who loves film. Mm-hmm. Like, it, it looks like a Cassavetti-style, downtown, underground, experimental film. The stuff he's doing with lighting and the stuff he's doing with editing. Uh, It's almost like the French New Wave, really. It just happens to have a lot of really nasty stuff in it. So The Touch of Her Flesh stars Michael Findlay himself. He he goes off to work one morning and his wife uh, meets her, the man she's having an affair with, He comes home, catches her in the act. In his anguish, he runs out into traffic, gets run over, loses his one of his eyes, spends the rest of the movie in an eye patch and decides to declare war on womanhood because these these women, you know, they're all they're all whores. They're all going to get you. And he does that by murdering them all in brutal ways. It's not quite as unpleasant as it sounds. Mm -hmm. It's a sexploitation film, which means there are a lot of scenes of women getting dressed getting undressed stripping puttering around their houses while he spies on them sexploitation does not mean pornography but we'll get there eventually and you know as i'm watching this i'm thinking geez this really has some slow spots and then i think oh right i'm supposed to be jerking off (laughs) now Uh, i kind of liked the movie though because not only is it well made and well edited or at least creatively edited but it's shot in that like down and dirty guerrilla style on the streets of new york style that you know so many sexploitation movies of this day are and i'm a sucker for actually that's the thing that i like most about all the movies we're talking about is they're real like new york guerrilla style street films and the touch of her flesh was a huge hit and what happened after that it leads to sequels the kiss of her flesh the curse of her flesh and roberta throughout all these films was very involved she actually directed her first feature before a touch of her flesh came out in 1966 it was a film called take me naked and also starred her yeah you know it's hard to know how involved she was though because on, she says that she wasn't yeah on the flesh films she's actually credited as co-director on their later film and their most notorious film snuff i believe she's also credited as co-director on the Rialto report podcast she sort of talks about it like oh you know maybe he gave me a camera and i pressed a button you know to to film it but the fact that she's so dismissive about everything Mm -hmm. leads me to believe that she's almost trying to distance herself from all this stuff. Mm -hmm. Like if you look at the credits, it says like lighting technician all the way back in 1964, Roberta Finley. And later in the film she directed, she shows a very sophisticated grasp of lighting. 
Uh, and in the touch of her flash, you hear her voice on the soundtrack playing multiple characters, like a lot of sexploitation films who was shot without sound. So she's she's in there dubbing the characters. So Michael Finley's most famous film is probably Snuff, but we actually don't have to talk about it that much because the thing that it's famous for doesn't involve him at all. He went down to shoot this movie in Argentina apparently just because it looked like fun to shoot a movie in Argentina. It's kind of about the like the Manson clan, kind of based on their story. By all accounts, it's extremely boring. I, I plan to watch it one day <laughs> because, you know, it's just... I've a, seen the final scene. It's Yeah, me too. It's just like one of those notorious films. The final scene was grafted on by other people later, and it, you know, contends to show the making of a snuff film. And the movie was very cannily marketed as a snuff film. It was released on 42nd street with the tagline the movie that could only be made in south america where life is cheap well producer alan shackleton who roberta and michael worked with a lot famously hired a bunch of protesters to like (laughs) march in front of the theater to make a big fuss about it and to the point that it actually caught the attention of real protesters who ended up coming and protesting as well and then like you know the new york times had articles about what is this like snuff film that's playing on 42nd street this was of course during the period when people were actually really worried that there were snuff films it was this like urban myth i think al goldstein once offered like a million dollars for anybody who could prove the existence of a snuff film and no one was able to find it but you know hardcore by paul schrader is one of those movies that kind of plays into the myth you know now that maybe there actually are snuff well there are stuff yeah like with the way the internet is but i think that the idea at that time was that they're commercially available yeah and that you could like go to a theater or you could go to a peep show booth Uh, you know that guy 42nd street pete uh, yeah, the DVD bootleg kind of seller guy. Yeah, and he writes Grindus Purgatory. Uh, he's written a bunch of articles claiming that he actually saw one at, huh. at like a peep show booth. It was probably like Last House on Dead End Street yeah, or something yeah. like that. <laughs> but we don't know. We weren't there. Yeah. Uh, so Roberto continued to work with her husband, Michael, principally as a cinematographer. But you get the sense looking at their films that she also did a lot more like editing, lighting. She says that she never had any kind of interest in making movies, that she was shackled into it. But then in interviews that I've read, she's kind of opened up a little bit more near the end where she's like, oh, yeah, but, you know, I I really like lighting and I really like editing and I really like framing the thing i didn't like was directing when you actually get her to sit down and talk about her craft she can talk about it very well like she does uh, a commentary track on the new blu-ray for a woman's torment and you know she did a q a when it played at the quad last summer it almost feels like she's melting like over the years like she was been famous that you'd have to call her 15 times and every time she'd hang up but now she's doing commentary tracks on her movies she's going to the quad and doing a Q&A for her movies like you mentioned and also so, and like this is somebody who you know by her own admission didn't have a lot of self-esteem mm-hmm. by her own admission is an alcoholic mm-hmm. not a recovering one either and kind of kept going into relationships with these very like forceful men who i'm sorry if i'm misrepresenting this but but don't seem to have treated her all that well Mm -hmm. and also she's somebody who grew up or came to love movies loving movies by like john ford and then she's making porn films and horror films genres that got no respect whatsoever so uh, it's a perfect storm of things to make you not feel good about your body of work so she left a michael finley her husband And a few years later, he died in a horrible accident where, reading it up on the internet, a helicopter malfunctioned in front of him, tipped over, and cut him to pieces. 
What a way to go. Uh, that's crazy. But she continued working in movies, even though that she said she doesn't know why she didn't get out of it. She just, it's what she knew. She ran off with Walter Sear, who became her producer. The way she says it, like they were going to make movies and she said, oh, I, I could maybe direct one of these things because she'd been around movies for so long. And they started making softcore erotic movies transitioned into hardcore films i've seen a few of her hardcore films in my travels over the years I was, uh, <laughs> along the dusty trail with your uh, sack over your shoulder uh, you're like I, oh another finley why not i remember seeing um anyone but my husband and uh sweet pumpkin i love you two films that are memorable not for their filmmaking what she does during the sex scenes which she's said multiple times she hated filming them and she also hated sex in real life is that she would use a very long lens to zoom in a macro lens Mm -hmm. on the genitalia and then slowly pan up and then pan down just to pad out that sex stuff. Uh, Well, she also says that Walter Sear shot a bunch of the sex scenes. She said that he choreographed them and everything, whereas she would be kind of like, okay, just just start fucking. (laughs) Uh, Oddly enough, though, for somebody who hates sex, uh, her films can get quite raunchy. I mean, anyone but my husband is notorious for, uh, okay, everyone, take your kids out of the room right now. It's it's notorious for a fisting scene. (laughs) No one can see me my it to our uh, recording and and you know various other uh i think there's some bdsm and various other acrobatics As her even her sex films had kind of odd takes on them famously she made a film called mystique which is about a woman dying of cancer which has the infamy of being written by roger watkins the director of last house on the dead end street oh uh, important cinema club favorite i actually sent that to will he's like what oh my god i didn't yeah. know that yeah he's not credited on an imdb and supposedly him and uh, roberta kind of went head to head because he wasn't credited he unofficially adapted deaths in venice which is crazy <laughs> i haven't had a chance to see the film on her commentary for a woman's torment she says uh, she speaks kind of derisively of roger watkins she said that uh his his pseudonym was richard mahler and he claimed to have actually been a descendant of Gustav Mahler. (laughs) Uh, Who knows if that's true? Probably not. So the first film we're going to talk about that she actually directed after this long prologue, but uh, Roberto has a very varied life in the industry, is A Woman's Torment. Mm -hmm. Uh, This was recently put out on Blu-ray for the first time, I believe, in widescreen, Mm -hmm. and also for the first time in an R-rated cut, Mm -hmm. which is her preferred version. And A Woman's Torment uh, could be described as her take on Repulsion, uh, Roman Polanski's film about a uh, young woman going insane. But in this case, it stars an actress called Tara Chung, who is just indescribable. She's so weird. And I love the fact that she disappeared before filming was over, <laughs> acted in like two more films and was never heard from again. <laughs> like, who is this person? Yeah, the film opens with her trapped in a loveless marriage to an uncaring husband uh, in the big city. 
the husband is cheating on her of course uh to get away from her life she goes to this summer house on the beach roberta findley in this period always liked to shoot on the beach uh because she had access to a house there and because it was fun to spend time on the beach (laughs) a real jess franco who you know who wouldn't yeah and we see her descend into madness we see a lot of shots of her a lot of very artful shots of her wandering the beach and murdering the various people who come to the house it reminds me a lot of those kind of arty horror films are coming around that time like messiah of evil or Mm -hmm. let's scare jessica to death it just in this particular case it has the budget and production value of like the lint you find in your pocket i have to say it looks pretty good though like i think that like the art that she brings to it mm -hmm. like roberta finley distinctly understands how to make a movie Mm -hmm. but she's being rushed through these scenarios that she doesn't want to make Mm -hmm. so you get this weird kind of cacophony of images all laid together yeah okay that's a really good point because as i was watching this this thing i was thinking am i grading this on a curve Mm -hmm. because when you see a porn movie that has any artistic ambition you're you're inclined to like almost overrate it this is a film that has a tracking shot of like a woman Mm -hmm. walking to apartment as it goes through in one take all of the apartment guests and actually stops on two Mm -hmm. portly gentlemen talking about the role of women in fellini films and it that just kind of makes me stand up and be like "Hmm, yes yeah and or you know there are the flashback scenes that are so kind of like very stylishly very ostentatiously lit uh there are the slashing scenes where you know in kind of a Roberta Findlay trademark. She goes in for these like extreme close-ups. But like the that... close-ups in the film of the uh, main character's eyes are often Roberta's eyes mm. because the actress was gone, which adds a weird like meta narrative. I love to the that. Film. Whenever you see somebody from the back or you see somebody in darkly lit shadows, it's probably her. Yeah, it gives it this kind of like gorilla quality that I like. But I think that like looking at a woman's torment. For all the times that Roberto says it, like, I didn't want to make these movies, like, I didn't care. It's obvious she does care. Oh, of course. Because, like, she is interested in these things and in telling these stories in ways that they're not usually told. Mm -hmm. It's just that the audience or even a receptive kind of critic just didn't exist at that time Mm -hmm. that would make her feel that her work had value. On the commentary track, she kind of chuckles throughout the movie saying, like, what a terrible premise for a porn movie this is, like a woman going insane and murdering everyone. But she also mentions, though, that her and her two partners on the film each put in $3,000. And before it came out, she said, you know what, just buy me out, give me three three thousand five hundred dollars and then the movie was a massive success wherever it was released to like played on 42nd street for 10 weeks or whatever and she was like fuck yeah, yeah. <laughs> so people liked it and you know this was this was during that period like what was this 1975 or so mm-hmm. this during that period when there was like still kind of a movement to like well perhaps we could we could have the crossover porn film like the artistic like the deep throat kind of thing but the, like one that's like artistically ambitious like this if this but is, the, it's like a miserable film though which is weird that it was such a big success the opening of misty beethoven is another example of a movie mm-hmm. that like frankly there are more erotic films than that um but it's very fellini-esque yes. and it was also a huge success uh amongst these films and it just makes me wonder like what was the like did the audience like the idea of like was was the audience for these films actually willing to put aside their prurient um instincts for a minute to appreciate a movie that had artistic ambition i think in the case of a woman's torment they were probably aroused by the fact that they were seeing the kind of emotional 
deconstruction that the character was going through uh-huh. and they maybe felt power in that because the performance that Tara Chung is giving is not good but it's so odd that it gets a kind yeah. of halo of realness around it and then it's a film that like ends on like a huge downer too mm-hmm. with a um finale where the main character just kind of walks out into the sea as the waves like lap on top of her like there's no like climactic uh emotional satisfaction it's just like yeah she's gone insane and this is what happened to her Mm. which is kind of great and i can't imagine seeing that in the theater expecting to masturbate yeah (laughs) because woo. anyway interesting film well worth checking out it it doesn't quite all hang together no. but uh it, but, you gotta grade it on a scale but, but you know what i look at it and i say i i admire that <laughs> so roberta finley continued making uh pornography for quite a number of years up until 1985 where the unfortunately titled shauna every man's fantasy and by that i mean the subject matter as well was unfortunate because it was about the porn star who had committed suicide shauna grant and it was kind of made up of outtake footage and you know made to cash in on her death and i think it was quite successful wasn't it yes it was very successful but i think it also cast a kind of pallor to the people that worked in the industry over roberta finley's career because like how dare you exploit this person in this way also this was a period when you know the whole boogie nights thing happened where everything transitioned from 35 millimeter to video Porn theaters, whichever ones were left, were not paying the royalties to show the films. They were just renting them from the local video store and projecting them. Absolutely. Like, it was such a shift and there was no way to make money in theatrically distributed porn films. I do need to note, though, this is just a random piece of trivia, is that Shauna Everyman's Fantasy was written by the recently departed John Fasano, the guy who directed Rock and Roll Nightmare and Black Roses. <laughs> oh, nice. Also, that, is it Zombie Nightmare, the one that stars oh, Adam West? Oh, God. A- Zombie Nightmare, yeah. He went on to write films like Darkness Falls, a Hollywood picture, and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Oh, that's neat. Yeah. Uh, I just want to say, Zombie Nightmare, This we're way off topic yep. now, but Zombie Nightmare, a good Canadian film. Well, it's a good transition into what Roberta Finley did later in her career, which was horror. Films. Okay, so this is the other thing about transitioning into horror films. Like, it had to have also been, and I think she alludes to it on the Rialto report, that it just wasn't rewarding to shoot porn films on video. Mm-hmm. This is somebody who, you know, if she was making a film, clearly was in it partly to do her little experiments with lighting and editing, and that wouldn't have been possible on 1985 video. Yeah, absolutely. So anyway, the, the she transitioned into horror films, which would have cost more money and they would have taken more time to make, like two weeks compared to five days or whatever. But they were also extremely profitable. Mm-hmm. Like horror was in a boom at this point. It was Friday the 13th. It was Nightmare on Elm Street. Like she could make a film, make it cheap. She knew how. And she could put it in theaters with titles like Prime Evil. And it was probably going to make a buck. And it was also at that point transitioning into the VHS era which they just needed product to put on the shelves. It didn't matter what it was as long as it had a cool cover. Mm-hmm. And her films do have cool covers. Yeah, yeah. So me and you got a chance to watch Tenement, which uh, I had read ages ago was a terrible film. It was one of those like one-star reviews. And I don't know how it happened, but I believe it was I was doing research on 
uh, horror pictures directed by women. And I said, all right, you know what? I'm going to watch Tenement. And man, did it knock my socks off. I loved it. It's so good. <laughs> so on the cover, you see a bunch of punks and it looks like something out of, I don't know, class of 1984, other films. The of Warriors. That. Exactly. You know? And then you start it and it's got this really cool rap theme song. And you're like, all right, this is going to be fun. Well, get ready for about an hour and 20 minutes of misery. It's just like a descent into hell mm-hmm. in this poor tenement building in a in a bad area of town where that's just everyone's just trying to hold it together it's a lot of good people living there uh working class people from uh across uh races mm-hmm. uh you've got a, a pregnant woman you've got an old black couple you've got this you got that and they're just trying to live their lives but there's this gang that is terrorizing everyone that makes it impossible to walk the streets at night and also these are these are proud people too they don't want to move they've yeah. lived here their whole lives this is their building and this gang at first is kind of cartoony. The main guy has like dark sunglasses the entire time. Mm-hmm. But as the film goes along, it's like, oh no, this is not as funny as it originally was. Because what ends up happening is due to a set of circumstances, the gang decides that like they want to kill the people that are in the building. They want to take over the building. It's exactly. going to be their building. And Roberta Finley does everything she can to make it as unpleasant as possible. Up to and including a scene of one of the gang members punching a framed picture of Martin Luther King. <laughs> <laughs> Just watching Tenement, we've used the word unpleasant a lot describing this film, but there's such craft, I feel. Like, she understands how to, like, twist the audience's, like, screws and make them, like, feel awkward and, like, nervous about what's going to happen to these people. Yeah, and I mean, on the one hand, a movie like this is going to be intense and unpleasant to some degree because you're introduced to all these nice characters Mm -hmm. these nice hardworking elderly characters and you see them kind of one by one get brutally slaughtered and it is one by one uh to the point that you're like why don't they just fight back and also like nobody is safe exactly Uh, yeah but the way she shoots this space too she manages to create the tenement feels like there's nothing outside the tenement. There's no there's no way to get out. It feels sometimes like the walls are closing in on them. Everything is shot in these very oppressive close-ups. Because this is not a film that was shot on a set. It was shot in an actual tenement mm-hmm. building. And you can feel it on screen up until like i remember watching the movie time was ticking down and i'm like wait like is this gonna be a downer ending like what's gonna happen because she waits to the last minute and the way she films this space you get the sense that there's nowhere for these people to go Mm -hmm. like they also keep going up in the building floor by floor as this gang is rising up trapping them until like that's it Like, they have to do something. And, like, there's a way to make an apartment look enormous on film. And Mm -hmm. she does the exact opposite. She makes it seem like it's closing in. I think that Tenement is an interesting example of how her films have been received because... It's been widely available for a long time. It was on one of those, like, triple packs that Media Blasters used to put out. Like, I didn't hear any praise for it or anything like that. Mm. And it was recently released, again, by Media Blasters on Blu-ray. Ridiculously expensive, like $40. And, like, people that don't know the movie aren't going to discover it that way, which is really unfortunate. But if it interests you and you like siege films and, like, gross New York movies, you need to check out Tenement right now. Like, go and see it. Mm. I think that it would be a really good starter movie for people that want to get into Roberta Finley. Mm -hmm. It's not a porn film. 
playing with genre that people recognize, but just twisting them in a bit of a darker direction. It has all of her, uh, I guess, stylistic touches, mm-hmm. which are the kind of like oppressive close-ups uh, mm-hmm. and the hateful atmosphere yes. of her best work. <laughs> her films, right up until she stopped filming, were definitely the uh, pre-cleanup of New York. <laughs> and it feels almost like when that happened, she was like, well, I guess I'm not making movies anymore. This is also like the nadir of New York, right? Yes. This is the 80s. This is the crack at epidemic. <laughs> mm-hmm. So she made a lot of horror films with titles like Blood Sisters and The Oracle. Uh, me and Will got a chance to watch Primeval, which is one of her later horror films. Honestly, didn't think much of this one. Mm. Uh, It starts pretty funny. How does it start, Justin? Uh, It starts in (laughs) the medieval days. And by that, it's a church somewhere with guys in robes (laughs) and with a hilarious decapitation of a dummy head. Yeah, so this scene got me really hyped up. So this is going to be a little bit different, which is that I had... Not an opposite reaction to you, but maybe you uh, saying, oh, yeah, you're right, Justin. It's not good. Got me more excited. So when I finally watched it, I like latched on to the things that I could enjoy. Like the fact that the movie is like a Robert Altman film with how many characters there are. Like you're introduced to someone and you go, oh, well, I guess this is the main character. Boom. She's gone for 30 minutes. Yeah. Music that just pops before a scene ends, the music of the next scene kind of drops. <laughs> and characters that you think you're going to follow the entire way just get killed 70 minutes in, and you're like, oh, I guess he's gone now. Yeah, maybe I watched it too late in the day because I found it a very confusing experience. <laughs> yes. And I found it a little a little boring, and I had to make coffee to stay awake. It's a, it's a film where there's no one really to latch on to mm-hmm. in a way that, like, Tenement works. But it also had those not quite actor performances trying to deliver lines like no i won't go back to my pimp and i will stay (laughs) off the drugs from now on it just like it felt like a nightmare to me just watching it even the end where suddenly this puppet demon shows up out of nowhere and i was like wait what it just appeared in a cut and then it just rushes to an end it's like waking up from a nightmare and like someone shaking you awake you don't quite get the end well, uh, now I want to watch it again. Uh, but you watched your other film, Lurkers, as well. And it was okay. Yeah. What I liked most about it, again, was that 80s New York mm-hmm. quality. I like that it's accidental ethnography, mm-hmm. really. Like, New York was the canvas she was handed. It's not like she intended to chronicle New York or to have it be, you know, a character in the film. But, but there the, it is. The mix of her hate that you feel was just on the screen having to make these horror films mixed in with this hellscape that was New York at that time come together so perfectly. And like you see, you can see it in the touch of her flesh as well. And, uh, you know, you can see it in Primeval and Lurkers. It has this almost let's put on a show quality, this hateful nihilistic let's put on a show on the streets of New York. And uh, we should point out as well that While a lot of her films that I got a chance to see did star women and were stories about women, Roberta would be the first one to say, I'm not a feminist. Mm -hmm. She even goes so far to say that she hates women and didn't even consider what it was like to be a woman working in the industry because she would just plow through. And that the only woman that she wanted to work with was the makeup girl and nobody else because she didn't like them. I'm really not sure what to make of that. Because because again, both of these movies, Primeval and uh, Lurkers, have female protagonists. The three of her porn films that I've seen have female protagonists and, are told from a woman's point of view. And I don't think any of those films portray women as the enemy. 
in fact, the especially in a woman's torment, kind of portray them as figures that are crushed by like the men around her. Yeah, and I mean, I I, I hesitate to call those films feminist because mm-hmm. you know again a movie like Anyone But My Husband mm-hmm. is like it's almost like a body horror film. Yeah, <laughs> you know it's uh, it's about what can be done to a woman's body. So, you know, for a man's amusement. So it's not exactly a progressive film. Yeah, and her films, like Woman's Torment, are not about them rising up and escaping the shackles around them. It's principally about them being crushed by the surroundings, which I I don't know, like... I mean, I'm hesitant to apply an autobiographical reading to that, but if the audience wants to, go ahead. So her final film was a rock and roll picture slash punk film called Band, made in 1989. It was supposedly such a terrible experience for her that she just decided, screw this, I'm not going to make movies anymore. Uh, You can actually read about Band in Destroy All Movies, the book written by... uh, Zach Carlson and Brian Connolly, there's a very super excited review of it with an interview with, I believe it's the star of the film. And it's frustrating that the film is not available anywhere. Like you cannot mm. see it. I've Other than Zach Carlson, I've never heard of anybody else seeing it either. Mm, too bad. And Roberta Finley left the film world, got involved with her partner, Walter Sears, in Sears Studio, where they recorded musicians and stuff like that. I have famous musicians, David Bowie. Yep. Uh, they were like a pro place, and she still works there to this day. Mm-hmm. And do not try to call her, because she will not answer your questions when you do. You know, she has an interesting career, um, and I'm glad it's starting to get some attention. Yeah, now that people are starting to watch her films and they're coming out in proper versions, like something like Primeval was on those hundred movie packs in a shitty, ugly looking full screen transfer. And now we can finally see it in Blu-ray in its original aspect ratio. And you can see what she was actually doing, which texture can make a movie, right? Yeah. And her films are all about texture. If you go to her movies expecting kind of like an undiscovered auteur or Mm -hmm. like some like kind of eccentric outsider artist, you may be a little bit disappointed. But if you go in expecting kind of an interesting craftsperson who made a lot of pretty good movies and Mm -hmm. whose career just taken as a sum total is an interesting artifact. Love her. But I'm sure she thinks I'm very stupid for thinking that. Mm -hmm. All right. So it's letter time. You excited for letters, Will? We didn't have any last week. Uh, Yeah. Uh, What gives? Well, it's because I premiered a film and we got way off base when it came to releasing on a schedule. But now we're back. You can send us letters at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And the first letter is from Sean O'Keefe. Fellas, so I felt inspired to redirect some funds and become a Patreon subscriber after last week's less than flattering letter. Haters gonna hate. I found this out myself recently while sharing my fan theory on Gandalf being a degenerate sex tourist who's constant trips to a secret shire of eternal children with a cartload of fireworks and weed shouldn't be glossed over just because he's on a Catholic council of wizards or whatever the fuck with a bemused crew of avid Tolkien Jackson fans. Ooh, dark. Uh, I don't know where to start with that one, but okay. (laughs) My point being, you can't please everyone, but as a small token of appreciation, here's $5 a month to keep making a great show. Well, thank you very much, Sean. Sloan, you still owe me a book. 
which I assure you I'll scrounge up the money to afford. Hardcover. Oh, lay off. <laughs> no, no, no. Uh, actually, no, I shouldn't say that. That's very, that's very, that's very nice. I should write a book. This is a book that me and Will have talked about off air. And I can tell you, dear listeners, he could write it in like a few days if he just concentrated on it. But this book we're talking about was one that I actually, I don't really, actually, what, what I'll say is it was one that I wrote half of like a few years ago. Really? And then I thought, and then the problem is though, like, I feel like I got smarter since then. Oh, so you don't, you so, don't want to go back to it? Well, but now the whole book is like, I got to do it again now. Well, Will, during the Christmas break, we'll just, we'll, we'll do a marathon session where you write your book and I'll write a new feature film screenplay. We'll be like back to back, typing away on, I assume, typewriters. All right. Let, you we'll, know what? We'll do- yeah, for, uh, we should do that because you know what? Frankly, I'm tired of going out and celebrating your accomplishments. <laughs> I think what we really need is a launch party for me and my book. Yeah, that's right. And Justin, I fully intend to purchase a Vimeo link for Teddy Bomb, as sadly, I don't own a Blu-ray player. P.S. Sloan, I reckon Captain Happy's digs at you for socialism may be connected to your Michael and Us podcast, in which case, congratulations, I think you've got a stalker. Uh, Thank you. Uh, The letter writer is referring to last week's letter writer who... um, uh, I, I guess, uh, objected to my views on socialism. <laughs> Which, yeah, I guess. All the best, and as a parting conversation starter, don't you think it's odd that after what I personally felt were fairly nuanced critiques of Ridley, Ron, and St. Nolan himself, it's Roger Ebert who finally catches you flat? <laughs> uh, cheers, Sean. And I also think that, like, Ebert, particularly for people who get into movies, like, Ebert is almost like a moral barometer. yeah. He he gave a lot of people like a perspective, not just to look at movies, but almost the world. Like he was, he was almost like a philosopher, you know. <laughs> and for like, I think the third time, we like Roger. Yeah, yeah, we're, we're, yeah, we're he's okay. I have a bunch of books of his on my shelf. Yeah, so yeah. There you go. We just had some gentle criticism. So we have another letter, and this one's from Graham Blackaby, and it goes, Hey guys, I have a question about what may be the least respectable film genre outside of pornography. Fan films. Okay. I don't watch many of them, but recently I checked out the almost hour-long Never Hike Alone, a Friday the 13th fan movie that I really enjoyed. More than many of the actual Jason movies, actually. And that made me wonder, if there were more fan films like it, that I may be flown under the radar. Do you guys have any interest in them, or any to recommend? Oh, and Justin, have you ever tried to make one? Thanks for the podcast. It's always one of the high points of my week. Graham. Thanks, Graham. Uh, fan films. Well... I actually have never made a fan film about like a particular character or property. And it's something that's never even really crossed my mind, which is probably wrong because the thing about fan films is that a lot of people use them as calling cards because you can make a fan film about a property that everybody knows. And if it's kind of slick and well-made, doesn't have to be good then people will check it out because they like to see the things that they like. A few years ago, a podcaster and filmmaker made a fan film for Portal, and that led to him, Dan Trashenberg, getting the gig to make 10 Cloverfield Lane, starring John Goodman and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. And while I wasn't a big fan of the Portal short, I really like 10 Cloverfield Lane. I think it's a super fun movie. So, you know, that's how I think most people perceive, like, the road to fan films. Like, you make a fan film, that means people will want to see it. 
which could lead to other paying gigs of bigger things. I mean... It doesn't happen very often, though. No, it doesn't. <laughs> that is, like, the exception to the rule. Uh, but you've made fan films, right, Will? When I was uh, six years old and I my family got a video camera, I first made a Batman movie with action figures. And then later on, um, I rented from the video store a collection of mr bill from saturday, saturday night live does any, does anyone out there remember the character mr bill he was too adult for me so the, violent mr bill was the little play-doh man who on snl in its early days used to get uh, hurt in various mm. ways and he go oh no uh i made i then made my own mr bill film which was easy to do because all you needed was play-doh and then you would just smash it right i would smash it and i would also be mr hands you know, <laughs> the, the, the character who torments mr bill uh why do you think that people love making fan films so much um, I don't know for the same reason that people like to cosplay. Yeah. It's fun to, it's a fantasy. If you, if you love Batman, it's fun to step in that world and, mm -hmm. and like, like get in there and manipulate that puppet, you know? The question that I always ask when someone sends me a link for these is like, why did this person make it? Like, is there, are they just parodying this thing? Mm -hmm. Are they just like straight ahead? making a story on this or are they trying to deconstruct it like if they're deconstructing it's probably a parody yes and there's there's lots of those i mean like in the in the 80s and the like vhs days you'd get stuff like uh did you ever see that viral cartoon you're a rat bastard charlie brown yes i did where it's like oh the peanuts gang like murdering each other and everything or or like apocalypse poo mm -hmm. where it's the winnie the pooh cartoons to the sound of apocalypse now yeah and then you have stuff like joseph con power ranger short that came out uh, i think a few years ago mm -hmm. where it's like look what if the power rangers were dark and gritty so yeah that's not exactly satire but it is a more conceptual yeah and then of course like the the movie that came out this year kind of has the similar style to mm -hmm. it. Fun movie. I Hot take. Didn't see it. Then you have stuff where it's just exciting to see these things on screen. I remember at the dawn of the internet, the idea that there was a live action like Spider-Man like excited mm -hmm. me to no end. And I remember downloading this fan film on like real player and it was like spider-man fighting the green goblin and he was like in a restaurant that was obviously even as a child i knew it was just like his house and they had put a table in the corner mm -hmm. but it was just fun to see it on screen but i think that in today's you know pop culture landscape it's different right because we're inundated by superheroes like there's not a novelty there to see these in live action yeah well the other I think most famous fan film, Batman Dead End. Which had set Ada Cool News on fire when it came out. That was one that I'm guessing came out of some fans' frustration that, like, the Joel Schumacher Batman movies and maybe even the Tim Burton Batman movies had veered so far from the spirit of the comic book. So it was kind of an attempt to be like, look, this this is what the character should look like on film. But you remember the fan film was just Batman meeting the Joker and then a predator shows up and then there's an alien and that was it i thought it was stupid it was nothing frankly it was i think the worst kind of fan film that is just putting on screen what like the creator think people want like you like this thing here take it yeah. but but clearly it was an attempt to capture a certain sort of look yeah and mood um that you know like that frank miller look and uh i don't know i think time has rendered it obsolete i uh, i think if there's if there's a type of fan film that I am amused by it's like that Raiders of the Lost Ark one that, that all that the kids made where yeah. over a period of like five years they all 
using whatever they had at their disposal these kids did a shot for shot remake of raiders of the lost mm-hmm. ark which is the kind of project that is only appealing to you if you're a kid yes um and you know when you i, I haven't seen the whole thing but it's like it's funny to watch there was a book that came out of it out yeah. of it and a documentary like it's fun to look at that and be like those kids have moxie yeah exactly <laughs> they don't have a lot else but they have moxie <laughs> They don't have imagination, but uh, they have moxie. Uh, I would say that if anybody said, oh man, I got this great idea for a fan film, just take that idea and be inspired by the things you like, but just do your own thing with it. Yeah, like Twilight. (laughs) Exactly. Which started as a Fifty Shades of Grey fan fiction. Or no, wait, sorry, it was the other way around. Fifty Shades of Grey was Twilight fan fiction. (laughs) My bad. How could I forget? Anyway. (laughs) Oh man, we're going to get so many letters about that next week. Uh, yeah, and just do your own thing. Because I think that that, when you look back on it, will be more artistically fulfilling to see that you, like, put your own stamp and you told your own story instead of just, like, adapting something or just bringing your favorite characters up to the screen. And also, who knows? You might be able to sell it. Yeah, exactly. Um, yeah, I mean, you probably won't, but, uh, <laughs> but, but you'll have a better shot than if you made a Batman movie, which you definitely wouldn't be able to sell. I don't know, but maybe you could be making the next Cloverfield film. Yeah, uh, you won't. What do we know? Listen, I have no success with the filmmaking stuff. Oh, don't say that. <laughs> don't say that. <laughs> All right. So next week, we're going to be doing something a little bit different because we're going to be talking about cinematographers, specifically James Wong Howe, the cinematographer of Sweet Smell of Success, and Christopher Doyle, the guy who's done all the famous Wong Kar Wai films. And what's interesting about these two people, in addition to being uh, great cinematographers, is they're sort of culturally displaced. So you can send us letters again at importantcinemaclubpodcast at gmail.com. And until then, my name is Justin Kluke. I'm Will Sloan. Thanks for listening. A new film just popped up on Netflix, an original film that they paid for, and that was Noah Baumbach's new opus. The Meyerowitz stories. I pointed the, to the you. Meyerowitz. <laughs> That's right, but, Meyerowitz, because yeah. I didn't want to uh, say it incorrectly. This was a film that plays in Baumbach's usual milieu, which is kind of upper middle class people that aren't doing so well in their life. Uh, yeah. And the kind of miserableness of their families yeah but but very kind of like easy to watch Mm. you know kind of like hannah and her sister's era woody allen now i could have sworn you had said that you weren't a bombback fan i like bombback oh you do okay yeah Uh, you know maybe what i said was bombback is somebody who at this point in his career he's been at it for a while and i like his movies but i feel like i should love him at this point and Mm. yet i Aside from The Squid and the Whale, which is my favorite of his movies, I always kind of like just stay in this kind of like state of cheerful You moder- didn't like uh, Francis Ha? I actually liked that quite a bit. I don't know. I think it was the, the one-two punch of uh, While We're Young mm-hmm. and Mistress America, both of which I thought were like perfectly solid. Mm-hmm. But I Well, know. I mean, like, Baumbach is a filmmaker who doesn't have any bones about the fact that his films are very autobiographical. Like, if you look at While We Were Young, mm-hmm. it's about... A filmmaker yeah. who feels he doesn't have the success that he deserves, and a younger filmmaker stealing his thunder. A younger uh, Joe Swanberg type. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I, I, yeah. <laughs> and um, the Merowitz story is about the fact that an artist that doesn't feel he's gotten the respect that he deserves, and that he's sick and he's probably going to die very soon. You know, one of the things I liked about this movie is that it's really kind of about failure. Yeah. 
I, I remember when Inside Lewin Davis came out, a lot of people were saying how depressing they found it. And mm. I thought, geez, I actually found it like weirdly life affirming because like there are so many movies about success. Mm-hmm. It's nice to have one that's kind of like, it's okay to be a failure. You know, most people are failures. <laughs> and the thing about Inside Lewin Davis, though, is that it says this guy is good at what he does. Yeah. But he's never going to have success. The merit stories like Adam Sandler is not going to be good at anything. Like, he will not have an artistic legacy, and neither will Ben Stiller, and neither will Dustin Hoffman, their father, really. Dustin Hoffman, the patriarch of this family, who is supposed to be, you know, in their eyes, was supposed to be this great artist, but the highlight of his career was when the MoMA bought one of his sculptures and put it in storage. And now they can't find it. Now they can't find it. And uh, he gets invited to his old contemporaries' opening which is like rubbing salt on the wound. And uh, I liked uh, a line that Adam Sandler delivers late in the movie where he said, well, you know, I always I always had to believe that my father was a great artist because if he wasn't a great artist, then he was just an asshole. <laughs> yeah. And I think that I think that's great. Like we talk so much about like the great artists, like the Bob Dylans, the Jean-Luc Godards, who are total assholes, but are great artists. What about the ones who aren't? But are still assholes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Watching Noah Baumbach's movie, I'm always thrown into this weird thing that I hate watching stories of rich people on film, but I like Noah Baumbach pictures because it's these people that aren't doing well, like ever, pretty much in all of Like his first film, Kicking and Screaming, are about like people who just got out of university. Boo. Yeah. But are so caught into themselves and their own stories that their lives are going to lead nowhere. Yeah, the, the squid and the whale, Jeff Daniels, is like a not quite successful enough novelist. <clears throat> Based on Noah Baumbach's father. Yeah, or in, in Frances Ha. I actually love how Frances Ha ends with the idea that, okay, she's not going to become... She she's not gonna go in the ballet and her maturity comes from realizing that she's only ever gonna be so successful. I think that Frances Ha is <laughs> like a really good starter Noah Baumbach film because it is about that twenty something who has all these dreams and then just runs out of money eventually. Yeah. Or goes to Paris on a whim and realizes like I can't afford this, so I'm gonna have to move back in with my parents. Yeah. And like the Merritt stories, the fact that Adam Sandler and Ben Stiller are still kind of likable people, but also annoying in their own way. I think that Adam Sandler has struggled a lot as a serious actor because people don't quite know where to put him because he only does one thing, right? Yeah, I like how stripped down he is in this movie. Even most of his dramatic performances, he has a tendency to kind of ham it up a little Mm -hmm. bit. Uh, but like this movie takes advantage of his natural affability. Mm-hmm. Like it, like actually in this movie, he's closer to how he is in some of some of his more down to earth comedies. Like, I don't know, like a 51st Dates type movie. Yeah. Where he's uh, like normal schmuck. Yeah. Except like, in this case, he's a little bit more pathetic. Yeah. But like I like I like him more. I think his talent uh, comes from when he's like a regular guy Mm -hmm. and not so much when he's doing the water boy voice. Yeah. (laughs) That's just my opinion. (laughs) I mean, we obviously very much enjoyed this film and this section of the podcast was brought to you by Netflix. (laughs) Get your subscription now. 30 days free. I assume Netflix should sponsor us and put us on their, their channel. (laughs) That was said so sadly. (laughs)